Welcome to the Piper Podcast. I'm Mary Nightingale. On How I Grew My Brand, we talked to successful founders about how they got to where they are, the nitty-gritty of what worked, what didn't, the truth about the good and the not-so-good bits along the way, and, crucially, how they navigated the key inflection points en route to becoming a brand legend. Piper has identified those pivotal points as 7-17-70, whether that's turnover in millions, numbers of staff or perhaps sites. Now, Piper believes that 7-17-70 are the points at which businesses really need to change and adapt to progress and thrive. Today, I'm with Tamor Atigechi, founder of Papier, the direct-to-consumer stationery brand renowned for its personalised notebooks and other luxury paper products. Launched in 2015, it has become something of a cult amongst what it calls paper people, stationery obsessives who love nothing more than the romance and promise of a clean blank page. Welcome, Tamor. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's lovely to be here with you. Now, before we get on to these paper people, tell me, where is Papier on that 7-17-70 journey? Uh, on, on a kind of employee basis, we're now 90 people. So we've gone through those three hurdles of 7-17 and 70. And turnover? At the top end of that too. So, okay. yeah, we, we're, we're right the way through that okay. uh, journey. Describe exactly what Papier does. So we are a stationary brand. The big difference, though, between what we do and what, what others do is we've, we've approached this differently. We are digitally native. So we launched this whole brand online, whereas the majority of sales and stationery happens in store. And obviously, as you mentioned, also 90% of our products are personalised. So we're using the power of technology to allow paper people to have their paper exactly how they want it. And yet paper is such, a, such an analogue product, isn't it? I mean, in some ways you'd think that there's no market for stationery anymore. Aren't we doing everything online? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the most fun things about running this business is it's constantly challenging preconception. A lot of people think that with the rise of digital, analogue is on its way out, but it's actually quite the contrary. As digital's growing, more people want to react or balance that out by consuming more via analogue products. We're seeing that especially with young consumers that are trying to detox Okay, we'll talk much more about that later, but just take me right back to the beginning. Where did the idea initially come from? It is all a bit of a blur, and I and I have to say there isn't an apple falling from the tree moment, but the stars aligned is usually what I say. I, I am an avid stationary addict and fan um, and a huge lover of everything, art, design, and was itching to set up a brand and business. And in some ways, when writing, I do a lot of letter writing and note writing to friends. Um, it was staring in, staring me in the face and saying, this is, this is the brand that doesn't exist. Uh, and the more I started to look into the category of stationery, which is not something it's not very well written about, people don't know much about it, the more I realised that it was A, huge, and B, really ripe for disruption from a technology perspective. So I took the plunge and decided I'd build my brand in the space. Did you always want to start your own business? I, I did. The real uh, starting point was as, an, as a trader, an antiques dealer. Uh, and that was a small business. I was buying antiques from flea markets and auction houses and selling them on the Portobello Road. And that's where I learned to sell stories in particular. Um, I think the best way to learn how to sell is to sell art because 
there's no intrinsic value at all in the object. It's either a canvas or a piece of brass. Really, the value is in the story, which is exactly what a brand is. Um, so that's where it all started. I then set up a brand while I was at university as well, a student news publication. The Tab. The Tab, um, which gained some notoriety during its time as well. But it was certainly the first foray into a consumer brand that everyone around me, and certainly at the university, uh, was waking up early to see what was being published that morning. So that was that start. And when I then started work at a company... It only was about two and a half years before the itch came back and I had to leave to set something up again. One of the things you said which which made me smile, you said entrepreneurship should come with a health warning. Yes. I think there is a cult of the of, of kind of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs at the moment. And it's very it can seem very glamorous, or at least it can seem it is very aspirational for a lot of people. And I think that's brilliant. I think with I think this this country in particular is producing fantastic entrepreneurs. Um, But I think people need to go into it being aware of everything about it, the pressure that you will be put under, uh, the stress that can come with that. So all of that is is me saying, you know, if you go to a shop and you buy something, it does have a warning label on it. And I think I think that should also be the case with with becoming an entrepreneur. And and every time I tell people, I always say, do it. Uh, You know, I, I don't want to put anyone off, but do it eyes wide open that this is. This won't always be easy. What was the vision of of Papier? What did you set out to do? I set out to build a category-defining brand. And the way that looks in practice is, you know, we always say we want a piece of Papier to touch everyone's lives because it's such an everyday product, whether it's a notebook, a journal, a card, that it should be going round uh, everyone we know. It's a, it's a mass-market product too. We, we really want this brand to go beyond just our own borders. We're, we're now in the US and Australia. Uh, so, so the vision really is brand building. It's about how many people can interact with this product and get a lot of joy from it as a, as a product too. Piper's idea is about building a brand legend. And it's all about staying true to the purpose, mm. isn't it? So how did you define that? What was your purpose? Our purpose has always been, as we say, we invite people to uncover the possibility of a blank page. And that has many meanings. It's obviously quite literal in the sense that we do we are a, a business that is interacting with the page. But it's it's also goes beyond that because the, the blank canvas or the blank page, as we call it, whether it's a wedding invitation or a card or an empty notebook is is actually so powerful because it's at that point that it's going to hold people's thoughts, emotions, uh, plans, ambitions. And that's really what the purpose is about. I think we always say, especially when people join Papier as new employees, don't sell stationery because that's not the purpose of, of being at Papier help people uncover that possibility of a blank page. And that comes should come through in all of our, our marketing, the way, we, the way we talk about our product. It goes, as we say, beyond the cover. What is the, the tone of voice that, that you use to communicate with your community? It's three things. Uh, wondrous is one of the words we use. Um, and that's because, again, there is a lot of wonder in this product and this category. Um, remarkable is another. We really want people to kind of stand up when they hear the tone of voice. And then the third one, which almost balances it, is considered. And the reason that third part came in is because it was the most common trait with, with all of our customers, very considered in, in everything that they say, they do, they feel. 
uh, and very thoughtful. So we try and put those into practice. And almost if I cut through it one level beyond that, the, the one word which is quite cheesy but always comes, comes out of where everything we do is magic. When you think of stationery and you go into a stationery store uh, or visit a stationery site, there is a slight feeling, a tingle in your, in your body that's, you know, you're, you're in this amazing space. Um, and we don't want to tie that to science because there's more than science going on there. And so we just call that magic. So we want to try and capture a bit of that magic in how we talk about the product. It so chimes with me because I think probably like a lot of people, what some of my earliest childhood memories are of blank bits of paper. And I remember going to my dad's office and occasionally I was allowed into the, the stationery cupboard and just the smell of it mm. and the fit. It's a very sensual it is. experience, isn't it? And, and that world of possibility. But I, I do remember being intimidated by the blank page as well. I, yeah. I, I used to get a pile of paper and, and pads to draw on and things. And I, I, I didn't want to make a mark because I yeah. didn't want to spoil it. Yeah. And everything you're describing are the words of a paper person. So whenever we do campaigns and we, we market, instead of telling people what a paper person is, we say, you know, if you like the smell of a new magazine, you're probably a paper person. If you like the taste uh, or of, of, a, of an envelope, um, you're probably a paper And so whenever we do have those cues, you suddenly see everyone kind of nodding and go, oh, that's me. And you realise that, there are so many of these paper people out there in, in, in the world and they still exist and they're of all ages. It's not people who have not grown up with uh, digital. It's, it's young consumers especially who are now thinking and feeling that way. That feeling of a new exercise book at exactly. school and you had to do your best writing. Yeah, and you don't want to ruin it and you don't want to spoil it and if you do, you'd rather tear that page out. I'm just wondering, I, I, I now realise I'm a paper person. I buy paper but I don't use it because I'm too scared to use it. Do you have any stats on the amount of your stuff that is bought and people just look at it? I don't, don't have those stats. Maybe we should maybe we should find them. But I think we do a lot of con we write a lot of content that tries to um help people overcome that fear of putting pen to paper because that is a very paper person trait too. We do get some people who like to buy multiple because they'll have one that they don't want to touch and then one that they'll use. Yes, it's just something about the beauty of that immaculate and you open the book and what could I possibly put in there that would justify sullying that gorgeousness? Totally. I think um, have a stab. <laughs> Once there's a bit of ink on the paper, I think the rest, the rest will follow. Your customers, those paper people, are 90% women? Yeah, about 90% women. And that's that's been something within the brand. Uh, it's also something that's quite reflective of the category too. We just, we, we think it's brilliant. We lean into it. We we have the majority of our employees are women. We're about 80% women in, in, in at Papier. It's part of the wellness trend as well, isn't it, in some senses? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's part of what's being described now almost as a wellness economy, um, which is, you know, people are more informed about what makes them and keeps them well, especially young people um, who are much more aware of mental health as well, which is a which is something that's you know becoming much more common to be able to talk about. I would have thought it was exactly the opposite to that. It would be the older generation who are not so screen obsessed. But you're saying it's it, it's in some senses the other way around. It's the other way around because it's a balance. In some ways, older generations have less exposure to screen. So if you if you look at e-readers or Kindles, which is which is an example, 
um, you see that the generation that adopts the highest are older generations and younger generations are, are rejecting it and buying softback paper books. The generations that are have the most exposure to digital are the ones that are trying to compensate or balance that out by buying into analogue. There's a phrase you used that I read. You said, poetry has no place on your iPhone. Yes. There's a, there's a place for all different types of um, communication or messaging or note-taking. We're not at Papier Luddites that don't have iPhones or smartphones. We, we are a technology business. Um, and I use my phone for a variety of things. But if I'm going to write something beautiful that I want to send to someone, I'd rather not do that by a text message. So it's all about actually distinguishing the position that analogue has, uh, which is a more prized position in the hierarchy of different media at the moment because of its value. So you have this community of of paper people, very passionate, very emotional Mm. about it. How do you engage with that community? One of the challenges of being digitally native, um, as opposed to a retailer, is you don't get to see them as much. Um, And I think one of the things we'd love to do, and we will, we are planning on opening um, flagship store in London and New York, uh, is to be able to interact with them. But we do get to see that community through a variety of of ways. One is through events. We do a lot of events for that community. We do everything from letter writing, poetry readings, uh, in design conversations, and we invite that community in uh, to speak to them. And the other is obviously through social. So one of the the great things about social media has been it's, it's a home for different communities to be able to interact with us and with each other. And we've got over half a million followers across our social channels. And it is where we can talk to that community. We can share content with them um, and speak to them. Well, I was looking at your website. You have uh, you have a book club. Yes. You you have uh, advice on how to write letters, exactly. how to address envelopes. You and and, and even there was a, a music mix list that you had yes. to cook to, <laughs> and also the the idea of collaboration as well. Tell me how that works. About half of our products are actually created in collaboration with artists, with influencers, fashion designers, and even institutions like the Victoria and Albert Museum where, where we hold a licence with them. And, and that's been always part of the DNA. And when we talk about community at Papier, customers are one part of that. Um, our people, uh, PAPs as we call them, our employees, are another very Paps. important part. <laughs> uh, and the third are our partners, um, of which we now have 50 of these design partners. And they collaborate with us to create these these products. So how do you decide who, who to collaborate with? Because it's it's crucial, isn't it? The fit has to be right. Yeah, so, so we have um, almost a, a kind of group within the business uh, that acts as a, as a committee that decide who it is that we, we should work with. And, and the criteria for that is, is manifold. Uh, it, it includes you know, how much of our existing community already look at them and work with them or, or kind of see them, um, what brand value that brings to us, what kind of new reach that gives us. It might be parts of the paper people community that we haven't really spoken to yet. So that's how we decide. How we source is a number of different ways. We have scouts uh, in every different category. So whether it's art or home, uh, and these are not just taste makers, but they're kind of the taste predictors. They're people that are very much at the front of all the talent that's emerging. So customer research in a formal sense, but also less 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 formal too. Then it, it is, yeah. There's art and science that goes into it. I think with with customer research, we do both 
quantitative. We've got large surveys going out all the time. But also qualitative, we, we bring customers into the office. Maison Papier is, 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 where our, is what our office is called. And they come in and we, they spend time with parts of our organisation, me included. As I say, going back to that point about not having a shop means that you've got to work harder to get to speak to your customer. Do you see yourself as the tastemaker? No. I think in the evolution of a founder is always that on day one uh, or, or the first year in particular, you know, you, you are, you know, in inverted commas, the king in the sense that you are doing everything. Um, but over time, you are giving those responsibilities over. And I think um, a good chief executive should probably try and give that over and not interfere. Mm. We've got very high advocacy levels in, in, in the business. So that, that, that basically means a lot of these customers are uh, going and telling other people, their fellow paper people, that they should consider and look at Papier. Um, and actually about 20% of new customers to Papier come just by hearing about it through a friend. And the other part is the, the product itself changes hands. So whether it's a letter, a note, an invitation, or even a notebook, you know, a third of, a third of our products end up being gifted. As a result, again, people are being introduced to the community through receiving that product. So really the, the, the work is being done by, by the community themselves. And explain the added value of personalisation, because a lot of your products can be personalised, can't they? What does that actually mean? What does it bring to your brand? It it, it brings a number of things, I think, but the main one is around ensuring that each one of these products is unique. And I think the future of commerce in particular is that people just don't want something that thousands of other people have the exact same version of they they want something that's more individual that has a more of a story even if that story is to do with them and so the way you see people personalizing products is you know something as simple as a name which it's it's incredibly uh, interesting seeing psychologically the impact of when you have a product that bears your name on it you become much more attached to it. it's very much yours and protective of it um, and likewise when you're gifting a product that bears someone's name uh, it is very personal. But beyond just name, you know, because of the nature of these these products, these books, they are empty canvases. But the point in which you give it a title, so that could be, you know, Paris Travels or Business Plans, suddenly that product has purpose. Now, you had a very uh, tough time when COVID first hit, didn't you? Because 40% of your business was wedding related and clearly there were no weddings happening. So yeah. how did you deal with that? When COVID first happened, I think myself, like any other business, just had a period of working out what's what's happened, um, what's gone up, what's gone down, what's still there, what's not. It's just kind of really seeing the lay of the land. Um, and what we obviously saw is that part of the business, it was about a, about a third of the business, which was wedding invitation related or or wedding related um, obviously evaporated as that most weddings were postponed but on the flip side all of our other categories of products and particularly our core which is core personal stationery um, started to absolutely boom uh, for a number of reasons but in part because this is a market that's been particularly offline and so all of a sudden everyone is looking for those products online and we are the leading brand in that space. So on balance, it ended up being uh, a, a period where the business actually grew quite considerably. 
So the product um, evolved during during COVID, but how does it normally uh, evolve? Is, is it reactive? Is it strategic? How much of it can you actually plan? It's got to be proactive and not too reactive because of the scale of the business, because of the, the number of products that we're selling. Uh, we've got to be able to plan ahead. And we do that through customer research to understand what is it that they wanted. We've la- we just launched the recipe planner. Uh, and that was something that all throughout lockdown, people were cooking and learning to cook. And as a result of that, suddenly had all these recipes that they needed to write down um, and be able to remember. But we are able to be reactive too. All our products are made locally on demand. So our speed to market can be quite quick. So if we see that a customer wants a certain product, we can take to market quickly. This is all very positive, which is wonderful. But COVID must have been a very challenging time for you. I mean, how how did you push through it? Because in terms of production and, and, and actually getting stuff to people, very, very challenging. Yes. Um, the magic goes when you suddenly pull everyone apart. You know, we, we'd just moved into Maison Papier, which is this beautiful space where our designers our, our, our team of buyers, the whole organisation kind of live and breathe. And three weeks after that, you know, we, we were basically told, go, we'll go home. So that, that was certainly tough from a morale perspective. And it did require a lot of grit and determination and cultural memory. I think what got us through that period in particular was everything that we'd built up until that point, the strength of bonds between all the teams that allowed us to push through. And how did you actually literally run it from day to day? And were you a natural worker from home? No. I suspect probably, well, exactly, <laughs> I suspect not really. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I was one of those people that had almost never worked from home. I, I, I was very much going in every single day. What was surprising was how easy it was to transition, actually. I think most people would have feared, how are we going to run this thing? Did you? Um, I mean, did you get a moment, definitely, a moment of panic? definitely. But it was remarkable how, you know, we do have technology, again, to thank for, for, for that. The tools were there to be able to run the business. And I think we, we moved into a world where um, I was chairing a call every morning at 8.30 to just get everyone together. And I think that energy of everyone pulling together to say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, at that point, we weren't sure that the business was going to do as well as it did in that period. Did you ever um, fear it might not survive? I think there is a always a fear of that when something of that magnitude happens. But that moment, luckily for us, was not very was not very long because it, it didn't take long to realise who were the beneficiaries from a from a commercial perspective and who were the victims of it. And it became very clear that it was retail, in particular shops, etc. And actually, if you were an online business that you were going to be a beneficiary of that. But there was that period where you, know, you, you didn't know. I mean, there was a period where we thought, what if deliveries stop? Well, I was going to ask you about that, the kind of nuts and bolts of it. Yes, you're online, but you actually have to deliver a product. Yeah. The manufacturing partners um, that we have who are manufacturing our products locally, you know, they've got to be around. But we were fortunate that, by and large, uh, the impact that was on us was, was minimal from, a, from, uh, from that perspective, and we got through it quite effectively. Sustainability Hmm. is something that's really important to Piper, which is about to become a B Corp. Hmm. How do you think of sustainability at Papier? Because on the face of it, you wouldn't seem to be a particularly sustainable product. There there are two parts to this. The first is myth busting. Um, And we as a brand are about to embark on a a big mission to, to make it our mission to bust the myth, which is that paper is bad. 
In fact, it's the opposite, especially if you're buying through brands like Papier that are sourcing its paper through FSC certified forests. FSC? It's the Forestry Council. So it's effectively a mark that this paper is 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 good and it's sustainable as opposed to coming from natural raw forests in, in Asia or South America, for example. If you look at the forests that, that are sourcing the papers that we use in, in Europe primarily, primarily, they are growing at a pace of about 1,500 football pitches a day, and that's net. So, the, so by buying into good papers and, and through brands like Papier, I'm not going to say we're the only brand, but through a brand like Papier, you are actually growing the forestry in, in, in Europe. So that's the first myth. The, the second is around the alternative. If you're using a notebook and you get through that in the, over the course of the year and you dispose of that and you recycle that, that will biodegrade naturally. We don't use any plastic in any of our products um, over a period of months. Now, if you compare that to how people cycle through digital products every single day and year, um, you know, it's very clear. So really, we view using papier and using paper in particular as very, very sustainable. The other point, though, is the way we produce our products is all local and all on demand. And we're only producing what the customer needs. So it's only at the point at which you place the order do we actually manufacture it at that point. Therefore, there's no excess waste that we have to dispose of. You say that you're operating, particularly in other territories as well, Australia and the States. So are you producing locally there then? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So we, we are always producing close to the customer. And we think that that is a model for all industries in, in reality, so that we are, we are able to produce on demand and locally. So what the customer needs, as opposed to just producing lots of things that the customer may not want and discounting until they decide to buy it. How does that work practically, though? I mean, what is the turnaround time between, you say you don't make something until the customer orders it. Right. That, so, so how long does it actually take? Explain so, how it so works. So it takes us between 24 and 48 hours to produce the product. And obviously this is, this is not one by one. So these are twice a day the manufacturing partners are producing this at scale. Um, but it's about about two days that it takes to produce, and then obviously it's next day delivery. So that does have an impact. It means that we're slightly slower than if you were to buy something next day off the shelf, but you know that that product is made for you. You've been able to personalise it and customise it, and it's very sustainable. It's not been travelled over from somewhere. You know exactly where the paper has come from and who's who's created it. You've mentioned the US. You've mentioned Australia. Um what about moving into other markets? What are your plans for that? For the near term, we're, we're quite focused on the US market. But in order to be a truly global brand, we need to go beyond that. And for us, the two areas we look at are Europe and Asia. And we don't naturally think that Europe is automatically the next step, as the Asian market for, for stationery in particular is so vast. Um, Japan in particular is an amazing market. They absolutely love stationery. It's really part of their cultural DNA as well. And that is a culture which is very, it's very precise, isn't mm. it, in its approach to writing and, 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 and paper. So how do you actually tackle a very established market like that? Well, it remains to be seen. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're, when we look at new markets, one of the things we do is look at what their taste profile is, what, what are they looking at, What's important to them? You're, you're right. One thing we did identify is that you know, in Japan as a market, it's quite, it's quite technical. They know their paper well. They appreciate quality. Uh, but all of those things are good for us um, in the sense that you know, we are producing a higher quality product. 
uh, and therefore we think it's a good fit. You're listening to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand, and I'm talking to Tamor Atagechi, founder of Papier, the stationery brand. So how did you initially raise the capital to actually realise this idea? Initially, it was going to people I knew, and that was either other founders who had raised money and asking them whether their investors would be interested in looking at my business. Uh, also, people that I'd worked with. So my, my boss at Bain um, was one of the people I went to and said, would you like to invest? And, and very gratefully, he, he, he did. Uh, right the way through to some cold messages to people that, um, that I hadn't uh, ever worked with, but kind of knew or knew of or thought were a fantastic entrepreneur. Uh, and that includes people like Nick Wheeler, the founder of Charles Tirrett Shirts, who I messaged very early on and he took a meeting and was one of the first investors in the business. How much money did you need initially to just start up and get going? So we raised £200,000 initially, and that was the amount that I needed to pay salaries of a few people that I knew I needed around me. Um, and they weren't big salaries, as, as you know, a lot of the people I was bringing on uh, were people who had were coming from well-paid jobs were also taking the plunge. So we also used, you know, the, the the ability to give ownership in the business early on in order to do that. OK, and then periodically thereafter you've raised capital from time to time. So how have you gone about that? How's it worked? Really, I think, you know, it, it depends on the journey you take. We've always been of the mind that um, having investors and having partners on board will get us to our mission quicker and be more likely to reach that mission is, you know, the capital we've raised along the way has always been with investors, you know, people such as Nick, who could add a lot of value in in advice and what they could, what they could bring. So over the course of that, that journey, we've raised uh, money at almost every juncture. So whether that's uh, at the point in which we knew we had product market fit, that's usually the first step. You know that people want this product. Now you've just got to go and tell more people about it. That's almost step one. And then there's another bit where, which is where you know we realise that the US market wants us, but we need capital to tell them that. So really, all of our needs to raise more money has been about proving concepts and then raising money to get the word out there more and more. And what about? And you mentioned Nick Wheeler. How, how important have mentor figures been along the way? Very important. I I, I don't have you know, very formalised mentor or coach relationships. But I certainly have a lot of people who I interact with as mentors and coaches. And these are people that include business owners who've been there, done that, right the way through to peers in, you know, people I know who are friends of mine who are in different industries. So very important. But my, I think my my advice almost because I hear so often people talking about mentors is don't worry too much about the official title of you know mentor you don't have to ask someone will you be my mentor um, you can ask for a coffee and in the course of 45 minutes there's they are mentoring you. So were there any particular skill sets you were looking for in, in, in potential investors? For us brand was important so we really wanted to have investors that either had experience in building brands up or at the very least could appreciate the value of brand, as that was always very important to us. Um, and the other skill set is, is just about scaling. Sometimes having investors who have been there and done that and seen that can give you that foresight to say, I can tell you now you're going to need that hire in three months' time, so, so 
to do that now. But really, those are the skills you, you, you ask for. The only one that I would add, which I think is almost the rarest of them all, is empathy. And I think the best investors in the, out there are ones that have founder empathy. And that usually means that they are, or at least have founders in their own organisations, um, as that's usually one of the, the rarest things to have, so that you can have a connection with an investor who can know kind of what different parts of the journey feel like. Okay. And what about the challenges of, of, of putting together a board? So the, the challenge there is really goes back to picking your investors, as your investors ultimately become your board. Uh, and therefore, it is one of the reasons why I'm going to empathy and, and making sure there's a good fit. You not only have to make sure these investors have empathy, have the right skills, you also have to get on with them because board meetings are frequent and you've got to make sure that these are people that you'll enjoy spending a lot of time with. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and how you run the business. What sort of founder are you? Hard question to answer because because I think the best people to ask would probably be the people that work in the business. But I think I try to lead with a lot of empathy. Um, I'm quite sensitive as, a, as an individual and therefore I'm very acutely aware of how people feel. And I'm very, I'm very keen to make sure that all the team feel energised and motivated, which can be quite difficult if you've been going to that 7, 17, 70. The more people you've got, the harder it is to make sure that everyone is, is feeling great and energised and motivated. I'm a Libra um, in terms of my own heart, so I, I tend to be very balanced. I will always give a balanced perspective on things. Uh, and, and therefore, one of the challenges for me and one of the things that I've, I've had to get better at is to make decisions quickly. Because as a Libra, if I'm constantly weighing up the pros and cons, I do have to land on one of those two at some point. And so that's, that's been the, the journey, I think, for any founder or CEO. To, to actually make a decision make about Make decisions something. quickly, yeah. um, I think, and with limited data or limited information. And, um, and you did it without co-founders as well. I'm wondering how yes. difficult that was. It can be difficult. I think the, what made it easier is I, I do treat my team, and by that I, do, I mean not just the entire organisation, but the direct people I work with day to day, I treat them as co-founders in the sense that I ask them questions that I would a co-founder. Should we do this? Um, is this the right call? Uh, that's a very effective way of, of, of actually not being so isolated and not kind of keeping yourself to yourself. Would you say that you are a good team player then? Are you, are you good at hiring the right people, I wonder? I've got better at it. I've hired a great team and I think that's been down to a lot of investment in time in, in making sure, again, it goes back to hiring quickly. It's challenging for me because, you, you know, these are people that I spend a lot of time with. How many of you who were there right at the start are still there now? A, a surprising number in, that, in the sense, I mean, the, the majority of them. Um, you know, very early on, you know, we had people like our, our CTO who uh, runs the entire technology stack, our brand director, uh, all of whom, you know, were very much day one hires and who are still leading those functions today. Well, that's the good news. Did you make any mistakes along the way in terms of who you, who you took on board? Of course. The learning always there is trying, if you do have those moments where it's a mistake and you don't think it works for both parties, actually you owe it to them to, to make that decision quickly because it's ultimately their careers that you're impacting by, by not being very open and honest and saying, look, I don't think this is the right place um, for you. Returning to the seven seventeen seventy theme, looking back, what would you say was the toughest part for you along that journey? There is a moment where 
the the team goes from being a pure family where you know if you just take those first years no one leaves i mean we didn't have anyone leave the business for a and long time you were how many at that point probably 15 or so people mm-hmm. and once you start to see that shift and and you know it's not it's not a bad thing people obviously go on to do different things you start to realize that actually you know i'm on a train that is destined to a destination but people are going to get on and off on the way but i'm not getting off so i just know i'm on there the, the whole way and you start to realize that actually not everyone is 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 going to be there the whole time and i think that's tough i think it's certainly tough for people who suddenly realize that you know that this business is changing it's evolving there are new people coming in people with a lot of, lot more experience as well so you start out with a group of kind of fresh-faced young people who um, are basically doing something a bit bizarre and bonkers and then all of a sudden you start bringing in people who've got 20 years experience on you and know what they're doing so it's, everything starts to feel a little bit different what were the key inflection points for you would you say so I, I do think that that 717, I mean, whether it's exactly 717 or 17, but, but I think the inflection points, what's interesting about that, that dynamic is, um, is actually thinking about that physically in a space uh, is, is actually the way I think about it. When you're five or seven people, you are around one table. And, and what's great about that is there is 100% context. Everyone knows everything. Even if I'm taking a call from an investor or something quite confidential. I'm not going into a different room. There was no other room. There was one room. So everyone knows everything. And that having that full context means that everyone makes fantastic decisions, feels very empowered and feels part of that. And so really, the growth, whether it's from 7, 17, 17 and beyond, is a constant challenge to try and maintain as much of that as you can without the ease and benefit of being around a table. So you get to 70, and I always say that one thing is you can no longer book a table in a restaurant for your entire team. Suddenly you're splitting into groups, and the challenge is really about how do I share information, context? How does it go from my head into everyone else's as efficiently as possible now that we're not all around a table? And how does it? That's been a challenge, and and, and the two parts one is technology helps with that a lot you know i have a channel dedicated on on slack just to my perspectives and thoughts um and 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 i share that regularly so that everyone can kind of get a bit of a sense of that i share sometimes video updates from me on on kind of what i'm thinking or what i'm saying and the other part of that is interaction so we do have what we call a monthly meet where the entire organization come together and hear from one another and that's where I do believe in some kind of real in-person connection. But it, it requires a lot more orchestration. It requires a lot of people. We've got a dedicated person internally just thinking about comms and how are we going to actually distribute this information effectively in a way that everyone can really understand. Is there anything you think, I wish that we had done that two years ago, mm. it would have made everything so much easier? When you're a fast-growing business... Um, almost every hire is slightly too late. So actually, the answer to the question is, I wish I'd done absolutely everything about six months earlier, whether it's, you know, having a CFO in the business or a COO, just this bits of the job that I was holding on to. You know, I was still ordering ordering envelopes um, when the team was about 15 to 20. And you think I probably could have, could have moved that on about two years earlier. Well, you see, my next question was going to be, 
how easy do you find it to delegate? And I think if you were, <laughs> if you were still ordering envelopes, perhaps at that stage, the answer is maybe not so easy to begin with, certainly. Yeah, I think that's a journey where actually it's very hard to begin with. And then something quite pleasant happens where actually you can't do everything. And then what happens is you realise everything runs is running quite well possibly better than it was when you were running it. And then it's quite liberating because then you're like, well, let's give away everything and let me try and delegate as much as I can. So it is a, it is a bit of that journey. Um, and and I, I do always think and say that, you know, the, the, the job of a chief executive is is to actually try and to, to a large part make themselves redundant over the period of their time. Um, and as the business needs to function very well without you, which is great in theory, but some mm. founders in reality find it very, very difficult to to let go of the baby, don't they? Yes. It's so all-consuming. It's everything that you've worked towards and worked for. And I have a lot of respect for those who do manage to make that jump at some point in their careers and actually step away from a business. Uh, it's, it's something I can't quite imagine. Mm. If you could put in place the perfect team, mm. what would be your ideal role within that? What would you like to be doing if you could choose to do anything? I must caveat this, which is I don't think this is where I'm best. So, so this would be okay. purely on selfish. This would be a very <laughs> selfish view. But <laughs> okay. I, I, I love being around and within the creative part of the business. Um, and, and the reason I say I'm not best is we've, we obviously have and have hired amazing creative directors in the business. But being close to that creative edge, whether it's sitting in a room and coming up with um, marketing kind of campaigns, you know, wearing your Saatchi hat, as I call it, and actually thinking, how am I going to produce something that will cut through to, my, to these paper people? I love that. In the middle of the night, are you lying awake worrying? I am blessed with the ability to sleep very solidly. So I, I, um, I've never had that problem would you say, because you're describing someone who's very empathetic, artistic, you, you, you think a lot about stuff, does all of that make you anxious? Do you, do you, do you worry about yes. your people, your, Absolutely. Your, your product? Yes, it goes back to the health warning. If you're someone who is able to work with um, anxiety and almost channel it in a positive way, to say, well, you know, if it's it's not debilitating, which certainly isn't for me, but it's something that's always there. It's the back of your mind that you want to make. You want to kind of make sure your people are happy. You want to make sure that that then that actually is probably a sign that you're doing a good job because you care. And I think if that ever went, that might be a sign that it's not. You know, you're no longer in it. Mm. Listening to successful founders like you. Um, it can give the impression, can't it, that it's very easy, it's very positive, everything is great. But there must have been some dark times too. I think the worst times are losing people. During the pandemic, we made difficult decisions to make the business more efficient in how we could operate to, so that we could survive and sustain. We didn't know what kind of period that would be. Um, those are real low moments um, because in some ways... They impact other people's lives and their careers, uh, and they're never easy and they're never pleasant. And I think the reality is, as the founder and the CEO, you get all the nice bits, but you do get all of the other side too. You know, it's your business; you're making that decision um, to lose certain people, and I, I, that's something that doesn't really, in my view, get much easier. Do you ever doubt your decisions? Less so. 
you try and stamp out too much doubt because otherwise you're constantly going back and forth. Um, but if there's no degree of doubt in your mind, um, then you're probably not making good decisions. You're, you've probably moved into arrogance. Mm. So a degree of doubt is is good because otherwise, you know, you we always say it, Papa, you've got to be open to the 1%. So even if you are very sure of something, make sure you are aware of the 1%. You can never be 100% sure. Uh, but as long as you can manage that doubt and say, oh, on balance, I'm going to make this decision. And if I'm wrong, I'm OK with that because I looked at that decision correctly. And it is necessary sometimes, isn't it, to be ruthless? It, it is important to be ruthless in, in making certain decisions that have short-term pain. But what makes those decisions easier as you go is the retrospective view that says, well, yes, that was painful, but actually the impact of that has been has been good. You have this success on your hands now. What does success mean to you? We don't measure success in purely financial terms um, because otherwise if the business is in pure pursuit of financial reward and outcome, then we're losing sight of why customers are loving Papi and why. And I think that's why there is this movement towards B Corp because people are identifying and realising that success is not purely financial. So for us, it's about the mission. And once we are a global category-defining stationary brand, then I think we will have succeeded. So we've got successes along the way. We're well on the way of doing that in the UK. Um, you know, one in four stationary buyers now know and buy from Papier, uh, but there's still three in four that don't know about us yet. So we're, we're on the way there, but that's the mission. Mm, that's the Papier mission. But I'm wondering about you personally. Mm. What does success mean to you? If I can leave the brand in a way that means that it outlives me, I think that would be immensely successful and something I'd be very proud of. I'm wondering how important it is to you to be perceived as successful. That's a very good question. I try and shield myself from any of that. Um, what do you I, mean? Well, I, I try and not think about how I'm perceived, um, as hard as that may be. It's one of the reasons I, I tend not to do a lot of this type of thing um, is that's really noise that can interrupt kind of, you know, my own thinking and decision making. It's quite difficult, though, isn't it? it, it, to it is. That noise. It, it is difficult. And I think, you know, I think the hardest point actually is at the beginning, because when you are starting a business and you get asked a question, how's it going? It's incredibly difficult to answer that question because what are you going to say? I mean, it's it's going, it's, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. And you kind of have those awkward dinner party conversations where everyone's nodding and saying yes, but maybe at the back of their mind saying, what on earth is, is he, he or she doing? And And that's the hardest bit. It's nice now knowing that actually the brand is at a point where people actually love it and the average party or, or a place I'm at, a lot of people will have heard of it and okay. a lot of people will be customers. And so instead of actually what they come to me and say is, oh, I love Pappy, I buy it from, from you all the time. That's really nice. It's, you know, it's, it's a transition from what do you do and you saying the name of your brand and then having to give a five-minute elevator pitch of what it is and why it's it, what it is to 
someone saying, what do you do? And, in, you know, I, I actually say I work for Papier because I, I try and just wait a little bit because if, if you say founder of Papier and they go, what? It? But then they go, oh, I love Papier. And then I say, oh, I actually set it up. And then I can get it. And then it, it kind of goes a bit smoother from there. So, it, so it's very nice to now not have to explain myself all the time in terms of why on earth I'm selling stationery. As I say, I try and avoid the conversation if I can. But now, increasingly, I'll just leave the brand name. And once I see it's uh, well known and well understood, then I might revel in saying I'm the founder. <laughs> Do you enjoy buying stuff? Do you enjoy the trappings of success? I, I struggle with the time to be able to do um, that much. And actually, I think one of the nice things about running a brand and a business is it keeps you so busy that it means that you end up not getting too distracted by shiny things as much. But um, no, it certainly means that I can live comfortably. It means I can enjoy it. It means I'm not worried as much about, you know, how am I going to actually be able to live? I mean, when you first leave um, a well-paid job, that does go through your mind. So I think just not having to worry as much means that I can just, just do what I enjoy. What do you do in your downtime? Is there any downtime? There is. There's a bit of downtime. And what do I do? I try a few things. I play a lot of tennis. I try and I try and keep very fit and active. Uh, and I cook a lot. The only two things I have found that takes my mind off of work is is sport um, and cooking. I use. I am a very big fan of art and the arts. I studied history of art, so I go to a lot of museums. Um, but I end up being very distracted. I might see a painting and it might trigger a thought of something at work. <laughs> when, when you uh, look at what you've achieved, what do you put that success down to? Is, is it luck? Is it timing? Is it uh, your sheer brilliance? I mean, what, what has made this business a success? I, not brilliance, but I, I definitely think hard work, persistence and determination. Yes, there's a bit of luck involved, but I am a believer that you make your own luck. And yes, there's an element of timing on there, but there's no better time than now. I mean, you know, if I had said, you know, you're starting and we are starting an analog business or business selling analog products in the digital age, you know, arguably that's the worst timing ever. But I've proven that actually, you know, with that clear focus that dedicate that determination to build a brand you can you can do that so i'm not a you know I, I certainly think that a degree of luck and some timing can help but those two things on their own are not going to be the difference to success and not in my view and finally what is the advice that you give to someone who's out there who hears your health warning about being an entrepreneur <laughs> but nonetheless wants to uh, start their own business? Well, I, I definitely, in, in an effort to not dissuade anyone, say despite that health warning, it's by far the most rewarding experience that you'll ever have. So if anyone is thinking about building a brand or, or going into an, and setting up a new business, my main advice is to just do it. And I really, really think that the longer you spend thinking about it, the more people you ask their thoughts on it, the less likely it will become you'll do it. And so I think you need to have an element of actually just shutting yourself off from everything and just saying, that's it, I'm doing it. And get to that point of no return. As, as nerve-wracking as it is, whether it's quitting a job, 
whether it's telling people you really care about that that's it, I'm doing this. Once you get to that point of no return, it's quite liberating because you've actually done the hardest bit of it all. And that really is the hardest bit, deciding that you are going to do it. The rest is all relatively easy and it's a lot of fun. And even if it doesn't work, it will be the best MBA you could have ever had. It will help you make the most new friends and connections networks and it really is a no regret thing. Taimo Atagechi, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.